When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I'm Jared Halverson, this is Unshaken, and welcome back to The War. I hope that last week's discussion proved the relevance of these war chapters. We spent our time with the bad guys and the good guys, Captain Moroni's preparations and fortifications, the opposition of people like Zarahemna and Amalekiah, Morianton, the Kingmen. In fact, it really hit me last week as I was video editing that those three major problems that we talked about, whether it was the apostasy and open opposition of people like Zarahemna or Amalekiah, the abandonment of the cause in Morianton's case, or the apathy that we see in the Kingmen, that each of those three challenges requires a different approach from us. When someone we know and love is struggling with apathy, or whether we're struggling with it ourselves, what do we do? Like Captain Moroni did with the title of Liberty, we remind them of the importance of the cause. If abandonment is the issue, and someone is leaving the church, what's our best approach? Like Captain Moroni did with the people of Morianton, we do our very best to head them off before they get too far and fully join the enemy. It's a lot like Ammon with the scattered sheep of King Lamoni. Go in haste, find them before they've wandered too far, and then gather them back to the place of living water. And for those most strongly opposed to what they once accepted, those who seem to be inching towards Zarahemna or Amalekiah-like opposition, what do we do for them? It may be too late, at least at the moment, to draw them back in or to remind them of the cause of Christ. And so our best hope is to help them lay down their weapons of war at least. And we do that largely by lowering our own. If we can at least stop fighting one another, then there's a chance for the Spirit of the Lord to soften hearts and renew faith in hopes that they, like the prodigal son, will eventually come to themselves and return of their own accord. There were two other things that really hit me as I was reviewing last week. One comes from a phrase in Alma chapter 48, verse 8. This is part of Captain Moroni's work of fortifying the land. But what we talked about last week was fortifying the cities that the Nephites already possessed. The trenches and the heaps of earth, the works of timbers, the pickets, towers, and everything else. But this was a phrase that I hadn't really noticed last week. In Alma 48, 8, it speaks of the Nephites erecting small forts or places of resort. And that phrase really stood out to me. What are our places of resort? Maybe this stood out to me now because currently we're not able to enter the temple, which has always been for me a place of resort. But do we have other places like that? Jesus talked about in prayer entering into our closet. Is that a place of resort? To be out somewhere in nature, is that a place of resort? Where do we go to be alone with God? to be protected from the onslaught of challenges that seem to present themselves, even if it's simply a place of mindfulness and quiet. Some Sinai of solitude where we can remove our shoes and be on holy ground. It's like home base when we played tag as kids, a place where you didn't have to run for your life from the enemies all around you, that you could rest 
and take a breath. Or as little kids, when we used to erect small forts of our own, a big shipping box where you could cut out a door and little windows, or a bunch of chairs with sheets or blankets draped over them. There was something about being in your little fort where you felt like you were safely separated from outside forces, especially during turbulent times. I would challenge each of us to find places of resort where we can go to be with God. One last thing that really hit me came from chapter 51 where we talked about the kingmen wanting to make those changes to the government, replace Pahoran as the chief judge with some kind of king. And as I stepped back and tried to get the big picture of what was going on there, it hit me that it's so similar to what certain groups are doing or have done recently to try to change things in the church. I'm not going to get specific in terms of what issues have been pushed for change because that might actually limit the possibilities that come to your mind. But think about ways that certain groups or individuals have demanded changes within the church and see if this sounds familiar. The kingmen wanted to change things, right? Now, Pahoran couldn't automatically acquiesce to their wishes. Even as chief judge, it was against the law for him to simply change the way that government was supposed to be run. Some people seem to act as if the prophets and apostles can simply make sweeping changes on their own, not realizing that this is the Lord's church and not theirs. Well, Pahoran actually presented the choice to the people. He entertained the possibility of that change. It wasn't just that I'm opposed to it. Rejecting it outright was no more his decision than simply making it happen the way they wanted. So he pursued the possibility according to the way that it was supposed to be done, presenting it to the voice of the people. Well, the people rejected that idea, but the kingmen refused to accept the outcome. They acted like the request had never been entertained, or like the question had never been asked. That's the part that really struck a chord for me. Sometimes when certain groups are demanding a change in the church, they're acting as if the brethren have never entertained the possibility, or as if the change has never crossed their minds. At least like they've never asked God the question. And in reality, the question has been asked. The answer simply has not come the way those groups want it to. So in reality, it wasn't just asking the question that they wanted. It was a particular answer that they were demanding. And not only do they act as if the question were never asked, they act as if the answer were never granted. The aim, the objective of the group has not changed. And since that more democratic way of achieving the objective didn't work, then we're going to just achieve it some other way. We're going to make it happen. And that's simply not the way things work in the church. The Lord is in charge. Prophets and apostles hold keys. And as they ask these questions of each other and of the Lord, as they reach unanimity in their decisions, this is all section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, then decisions can be made in righteousness and with unanimity to ascertain the Lord's will. I've had some really important conversations with classes as well as with individuals. And I've always told them, if you disagree with a position of the church, you are free to do so. However, don't assume just because an answer was given that your particular question was never asked. There are some things that the brethren simply cannot do just because the cultural currents are pulling society in a particular direction. The Lord is the captain of the ship and prophets and apostles simply steer in the direction that he is leading them. 
Now, moving forward into this week's material, the second half of the war chapters. We've got Alma 53 all the way through 63 today. 11 chapters, so a lot to cover. We'll be doing a lot of water skiing and snorkeling today. But to provide some connective tissue at the beginning, the same kinds of things we saw last week are continuing this week. Dissension, apostasy, is still the major problem. We tend to blame the Lamanites, but it's typically dissenting Nephites that are the ones behind all of these problems. Chapter 53, verse 8, the armies of the Lamanites ended up gaining some ground over the Nephites. And when did it happen? While in the absence of Moroni. Now, why on earth would Moroni be missing at such an important time? Well, right there in the middle it tells us, on account of some intrigue amongst the Nephites, which caused dissensions among them. We've seen this over and over already. Because of having to deal with internal problems, the kingmen were a major one last week. The Nephite armies could not combat the enemies without. They were busy with the enemies within. The intrigue and dissensions mentioned in verse 8 are repeated then in verse 9. And thus, because of iniquity amongst themselves, that's the real problem. Yea, because of dissensions and intrigue among themselves, they were placed in the most dangerous circumstances. It's interesting because the next column over in verse 15, when it speaks about the outer enemy that they're facing, it describes them wading through their afflictions in their dangerous circumstances. Well, outer enemies, Lamanites, were dangerous circumstances. But inner intrigue, back in verse 9, is the most dangerous circumstances. So lay those side by side. And which is the greater peril? No wonder the Lord works from the inside out, like President Benson used to say. No wonder we need to cleanse the inner vessel first, as we'll learn today, as Moroni discusses things with Pahoran. You catch another glimpse of this in chapter 55, where in verse 33, Moroni is making preparations. He always seems to be doing that, right? But this time, not preparations to defend cities that he possesses, but this time rather to attack a city that they used to possess. He was making preparations to attack the city Morianton. Name ring a bell? Morianton was the one who abandoned his post because he was overzealous to expand his territory. Pride and possessiveness, right? Greed and ambition were the issues that we talked about last week. And by now, Morianton had become an exceeding stronghold in the hands of the Lamanites as they had fortified it. The Ephite army certainly could have used Morianton's help, his loyal support, instead of his greedy desertion. One of the best examples of it comes in chapter 60. Again, we're seeing a continuation of what we saw last time. But in chapter 60, verse 16, as Moroni is complaining of the government's neglect, he says, had it not been for the war which broke out among ourselves, that phrase keeps appearing, yea, were it not for these kingmen who caused so much bloodshed among ourselves, yea, at the time we were contending among ourselves, if only we had united our strength as we hitherto have done. If those kingmen had united with us and gone forth against our enemies instead of taking up their swords against us, which was the cause of so much bloodshed among ourselves, everything would have been different. If you are not one, you are not mine and will never truly be one until we truly become his. No wonder one of the key missions of prophets and apostles, according to Paul in the book of Ephesians, is to help us achieve the unity of the faith. 
We will remain in the most dangerous circumstances as long as we remain divided among ourselves. Through all of this, we also see Moroni continuing to do what he's always done, preparing, preparing, preparing. In chapter 53, verse 7, it came to pass that he did no more attempt a battle with the Lamanites in that year. Not because there weren't battles to fight, believe me. But what did he spend this year doing? He did employ his men in preparing for war. Yea, in making fortifications to guard against the Lamanites, just like he'd been doing in all the chapters we studied last week. Yea, and also delivering their women and their children from famine and affliction. So often war is accompanied by famine. So it's not just his soldiers that he's worried about. He's worried about them too. The verse ends with, he's also providing food for their armies. The logistics behind military maneuvers are amazing. The supply chains and troop support. So much of the military are not frontline soldiers themselves, but they're to support them. So here Captain Moroni is not simply fighting battles. He's actually holding off on next offensives so that he can prepare his people, build up their fortifications, deliver them, not just from the enemy's direct attack, but from the effects of what they're going through. That's an important part of leadership as well. Now, like we saw last week, you couldn't ask for a better leader than Moroni. If all men had been and were and ever would be, right? All the great praise that Mormon heaped upon him. But I was a bit relieved, in fact, to see some chinks in his own armor in this second half of the war chapters. Remember, when Mormon compares Captain Moroni to Ammon and his brothers and Alma and his sons, calling them all men of God, those people weren't perfect either. We don't have to be perfect to be considered men and women of God. I'm grateful for that. And in fact, what we'll see today from Captain Moroni is another good example of what we talked about in our lesson on Alma chapter 38. If you haven't seen that one, I would highly recommend it. It was our study of Alma's words to Shiblon, this forgotten middle son, he only gets 15 verses in that chapter. But in that lesson, we talked about the danger of our strengths becoming our downfall. That the very things that made Shiblon such an incredible person were things that his father Alma noticed, if this goes to the extreme, this can lead to some problems. And we see that today with Captain Moroni. The very things that made him such a powerful military leader led to some mistakes on his part. So I don't say this to take him down any notches, but rather to remind us to beware of our strengths, the heads of that coin flipping over to the tails side. We see this mostly in the letters that Moroni writes that we have recorded in the second half of the war chapters. The first half contains much more action on Moroni's part. The second half has to do more with the epistles that he's writing. And this first one comes in chapter 54 as Moroni is writing a letter to Amaron. Remember, Amalickiah had been slain in his tent by the intrepid Teancum, the Rambo of the Nephite army. Amaron then takes Amalickiah's place and is now king of the Lamanites and pursuing the same selfish goals that his brother had. Well, now Moroni is writing Amaron a letter to negotiate a prisoner exchange. To this point, Nephites have only been capturing and imprisoning Lamanite combatants male soldiers, whereas the Lamanites have been imprisoning men, women, and children. So Captain Moroni was trying to work out some kind of exchange where we'll deliver back to you your male soldiers that we've captured. If you'll deliver back to us, not only our male soldiers, but the women and children that you never should have imprisoned to begin with. Worthy goal, definitely. But notice Moroni's strength and associated weakness 
that comes through in the letter that he writes to his enemy. The letter itself goes from verse 5 through verse 14. But notice in verse 6, Behold, I will tell you somewhat concerning the justice of God. Sounds a lot like Alma starting to talk to Corianton. You've been sinning and you need to understand God's justice. Moroni continues, The sword of his almighty wrath which doth hang over you except ye repent and withdraw your armies into your lands or the land of your possessions, which is the land of Nephi. So far, so good. This is Captain Moroni in his non-bloodthirsty self. We're not trying to extend our territory. We're not trying to take over the land of Nephi. We're fine to consider that the land of your possessions. Just go back to them. We'll be content with our territory if you're content with yours. So be aware of God's justice and also be aware of his mercy. You must repent. There's his justice. You can repent. There's his mercy. He'll forgive you. And so will we. Just step back. Withdraw your armies. Now, I don't know if it would have changed the outcome if he would have left things with that or maintained that kind of level of rhetoric. But he doesn't. Notice verse 7. If 6 is exactly what Moroni should have said, compare it to verse 7. Yea, I would tell you these things if ye were capable of hearkening unto them. It's almost like, well, that's what I would have said if you had ears to hear. But you don't. So let me say it a little stronger. Yea, I would tell you concerning that awful hell that awaits to receive such murderers as thou and thy brother have been. Except ye repent and withdraw your murderous purposes and return with your armies to your own lands. A lot of similarity there, right? Verse 6, you need to repent. Verse 7, you need to repent. Verse 6, return to your own lands. Verse 7, return to your own lands. But it's not just the justice of God and the sword of his almighty wrath. It's this awful hell that awaits you. Awaits who? You murderers. Now, I'm not saying that this is inaccurate. Moroni is correct in what he's saying. But I'm not sure if this is the way to win friends and influence people. In verse 8, he says, As ye have once rejected these things and have fought against the people of the Lord, even so I may expect you will do it again. Same old, same old. You've been a jerk, you'll probably remain a jerk. Verse 9 and 10, he seems to pull the rhetoric back a little towards the good side. We are prepared to receive you. And except you withdraw your purposes, behold, ye will pull down the wrath of that God whom you have rejected upon you, even to your utter destruction. But as the Lord liveth, here he's invoking his testimony. Our armies shall come upon you, except ye withdraw, and ye shall soon be visited with death. For we will retain our cities and our lands, yea, and we will maintain our religion and the cause, there's that phrase, the cause of our God. Oh, I love what he says there. There is a confident commander engaged in such a cause as this, as long as we do not offend God. If he's on our side, we cannot lose. As he liveth he will assure our victory. But the boldness of 9 and 10 grows into some overbearingness in verse 11. Remember, that was what Alma warned Shiblon about. Be bold, but not overbearing. Well, 9 and 10, you're bold, Moroni. Compare this to 11. But behold, it supposeth me that I talk to you concerning these things in vain. Or it supposeth me that thou art a child of hell. I just laugh when I read that. What a letter. It's like six and seven. This is what I would say if I thought you were capable of listening to it at all. It supposeth me that I'm wasting my time talking to you about this. Why? Uh, because I suppose that you're a child of hell. So let me wrap up this probably ineffective message by telling you this. I'm not going to exchange prisoners unless you do it my way. 
you deliver up a man and his wife and his children for one prisoner. If that's how you'll do it, then I'll do it. If not, verse 12, I will come against you with my armies. Yea, even I will arm my women and my children. You seem to be treating them like active combatants. Fine, I will too, and I'll arm them. You're making them prisoners of war, then I will make them warriors. I will come against you. I will follow you even into your own land. I'll shift from defensive to offensive. Rather than simply defending my land, I'll take yours. There seems to be this beautiful poetic justice in verse 12. I will treat you the way you are treating us. It shall be blood for blood, yea, life for life. I will give you battle even until you are destroyed from off the face of the earth. You seem to be pursuing a war of annihilation. Well, two can play that game, Amaron. Verse 13, he now admits something. Behold, I am in my anger. Now, I can't blame him. I would be too. Ye have sought to murder us. We have only sought to defend ourselves. Your cause is not just. Ours is. And if that's not a cause for anger, I don't know what is. And yet, maybe anger isn't the right word. If that's not a cause for righteous indignation, then I don't know what is. Anger seems like the counterfeit of righteous indignation. It's an important emotion. It motivates us to protect ourselves. It's one of the things that makes Moroni such an important leader here. But I do want us to grapple with the difference between righteous indignation and anger. I'm not trying to make Captain Moroni an offender for a word here, but I do wonder if it's that anger that makes boldness bubble up into overbearingness. If righteous indignation is more what he had back in chapter 43 and 44 when he's fighting Zarahemna, where the moment it looks like Zarahemna may be willing to stop fighting, then Moroni stops his troops mid-attack, basically, right? All this adrenaline rushing through their veins. It's one of the most important things we learned about Moroni from Mormon's account of him, that he gloried in the defense of his people, protecting their freedoms, but he did not glory in bloodshed. It's a great way to distinguish between righteous indignation and anger. When Jesus cleansed the temple and toppled the tables of the money changers, he was in control of himself. This was righteous indignation, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost. But when we're moved upon by anger, we may not be as in control of ourselves as we need to be. I remember once as a parent, well, lots of times, but this particular time, reproving betimes one of my children and doing so with sharpness. My wife kind of raised the voice of caution, like, ooh, honey, calm down. And I remember in that particular instance, feeling so moved upon by the Holy Ghost, instead of just moved upon by my frustration at a child who was disobeying. That's probably why my wife had to caution me. She's seen me moved upon by other emotions. But that time I knew I was in control of my emotions. I wasn't chastening a child to get something out of my system. It's such a, it's an interesting memory of just truly feeling in control. It was an experience that I needed to have as a parent, to be able to clearly distinguish between being moved upon by anger and being moved upon by the Holy Ghost. The conversation and the discipline that resulted from that, for that particular child, ended up being a blessing to them and a blessing to me. 
it made it so much easier to do the rest of that verse in section 121, to show forth afterwards a greater outpouring of love, lest he esteem thee to be thine enemy. We'll see the word anger appear several times in the second half of the war chapters. Keep an eye out for it and see the results that follow in its wake. They're usually not very good. The one that seems most haunting to me appears in chapter 62, and it's where we meet Tiancum again. He had successfully slain Amalekiah, sneaking across enemy lines under cover of darkness with his trusty javelin. He does the same thing here to Amaron, and Amaron meets the same fate that his brother Amalekiah did, death at the hands of Tiancum. But this time when Tiancum casts his javelin, he almost hit the bullseye. It did pierce him near the heart. But behold, the king did awaken his servants before he died, insomuch that they did pursue Teancum and slew him. I talked about this a little in our lesson way back in Mosiah chapter 25. That was the story of my mission companion, Elder Buckles, who fell in love with Teancum when he read the Book of Mormon in the MTC and literally cried, this big buff companion of mine, bawling, tears rolling down his cheeks when he found out that Teancum had been slain. Remember what I said back then. We don't mourn the death of someone who had never really come to life for us to begin with. Well, Teancum had come to life for Elder Buckles, and he mourned his passing. But what haunts me about this account is one word. We still see the courage, the unwearying diligence of Teancum. In verse 35, the Nephites and the Lamanites were weary because of the greatness of the march. Same thing that happened against Amalickiah. Everyone sleeping because of the burdens and heat of the day. So after that long march, no one developed any stratagem in the nighttime. They were just too tired. My strategy is called sleep. Let's deal with the battle in the morning. But not Teancum. The guy never seemed to sleep. But notice this phrase, for he was exceedingly angry with Amaron. Justifiably so, just like Captain Moroni. He's right, as it continues in verse 35, that Amaron and Amalickiah, his brother, had been the cause of this great and lasting war between them and the Lamanites. This had been the cause of so much war and bloodshed, so much famine. There's that connection again. The injustice of Amaron's cause was one of the things that motivated the Nephites to pursue so valiantly their own cause. But it's not just righteous indignation this time. It's not just the desire to defend themselves. He is exceedingly angry. And then in verse 36, the word reappears. It came to pass that Teancum, in his anger, did go forth into the camp of the Lamanites. Now, I don't know if righteous indignation as opposed to anger would have helped Teancum hit the bullseye. And if he could have silently escaped back over the wall to return to the Nephite army, just like he had done belly crawling across the beach outside Bountiful when he slew Amalickiah. But it does make me wonder if anger rattles our nerves just enough to make our aim slightly off in the righteous objectives that we are pursuing in life. I'm trying to raise my children in righteousness, but does anger shift our focus just enough that we don't hit the heart of the issue or don't truly reach the heart of the person that we're trying to change. We get close, we hit near, 
but both we and they pay a price for it. Does anger cloud our judgment? Perhaps this was a more dangerous circumstance than Amalekiah's. Amalekiah was camped on the beach. Amaron is within a city behind a wall. Again, I don't want to read too much into this, and it is a tragedy that Teancum dies. We see that obviously in verse 37. When Lehi and Moroni find out about Teancum's death, they are exceedingly sorrowful. They would have reacted just like Elder Buckles did. For he had been a man who had fought valiantly for his country, yea, a true friend to liberty. He'd suffered very many exceeding sore afflictions. He'd given it all he had. He kept his covenants by sacrifice, but behold, he was dead, and no amount of sorrow could change that. An old friend of mine, a colleague, a wise and respected institute director that was about to retire, was then serving as stake president at the same time. He and his wife were part of a panel of couples teaching a large group of us about marriage. And I was so struck by one of the things that he said. He said, you know, when I was a young father, I was very even-tempered. And I thought, eh, that sounds like him. He was, seemed like a very in-control, even-tempered grandpa. But then he defined what he meant by even-tempered. With a twinkle in his eye, he said, I was mad all the time. You see, his temper was even, but it was evenly high, evenly hot. We all laughed at that. But are we sometimes guilty of that same kind of even-temperedness? Will that cause sorrow? Will it kill relationships, even when our cause is just? And that was the case with Teancum and Moroni. We need to make sure that our approach to pursuing that cause is just as just as the cause itself. So both for our sake and the sake of those that we are trying to help or to lead, may we bridle our passions so that we can be filled with love. Teancum struggled with it in Alma 62, and Moroni struggled with it back in Alma 54. Again, this is an example of a strength becoming a weakness. If anger is the counterfeit of righteous indignation, it counterfeits are so close to the real thing. That's what makes them convincing counterfeits. Some people not only never get angry, they never get righteously indignant. They are so non-confrontational that when it comes to speaking the truth in love, as Paul said, they'll only do things in love and they'll avoid speaking truth even when truth needs to be spoken. It was the passion of Moroni and Teancum that made them such powerful military leaders. It's like when I see a fight break out in football, for example. I never want that to happen, but it is a violent sport. And sometimes the same personality traits that make an athlete an incredible football player might also simultaneously lead them to some potential problems of being a little too aggressive in other ways, both on and off the field. The same thing happens with military personnel. We've seen too many tragedies of late regarding police forces along these same lines. And I'm not trying to excuse anything here. Please don't misunderstand me. But there's something to be said for the strength, weakness, heads, tails of a coin. And sometimes it's the same bundle of attributes that gives someone the courage to rush in where most people are rushing out that can lead to some problems, even major catastrophes, if those passions are not bridled as they should. 
Now back in chapter 54, we see Amaron's response to Moroni. And we see certain echoes of things we've seen before whenever we catch a glimpse of what Lamanite culture was all about. Amaron's response is from verse 16 through verse 24. He returns boldness with boldness or bluster with bluster. Verse 16, I'm Amaron, the king of the Lamanites. I'm the brother of Amalekiah, whom you've murdered. Behold, I will avenge his blood upon you, and I will come upon you with my armies, for I fear not your threatenings. Keep your rhetoric to yourself, Moroni. Verse 17, Behold, your fathers did wrong their brethren. He's distancing himself. He was a Zoramite. We'll see that in verse 23 again. So I don't want to have anything to do with the Lehi-Nephi side of things. It's like the opposite extreme of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, right? I don't want to have anything to do with them. And your fathers, Lehi and Nephi, wronged their brethren. Remember we saw that back in Mosiah? In this review of how Lamanites raised their children, that we were wronged, we were wronged, we were wronged. We were wronged in leaving Jerusalem, being dragged away from the land of our inheritance. Laman was the eldest son, right? The birthright. He lost twice as much as Nephi did in abandoning Jerusalem for no good reason, as they believed. They were wronged on the ship. They were wronged when they got to the promised land. And as a result, they were wroth and wroth and wroth. Those are the words that kept coming up back then. Wronged and wroth. We see the same thing here. Your fathers did wrong their brethren. They did rob them of their right to the government when it rightly belonged unto them. I think Amaron could use a good review of 1st Nephi and 2nd Nephi. That Nephi himself did not want the right of government. He wanted Laman to step up to the role that should have been his. There was no robbery there on Nephi's part, simply disqualification there on Laman's part. So in 18, how do you make those ancient wrongs right? You lay down your arms and subject yourselves to be governed by those to whom the government doth rightly belong. Otherwise, in verse 20, we will wage a war which shall be eternal. Now that's obviously hyperbole, but it does suggest to us a parallel that I think we need to grapple with. Because is there an eternal war? Yeah, it's the one against good and evil. Like we said last week, that talk that President Hinckley gave in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, this is simply the war in heaven transferred theaters from pre-mortality to earth life. It's Lucifer that has been waging a war he intends to be eternal. Thankfully, as the book of Revelation tells us, it won't be. Jesus does possess the keys to the bottomless pit, as John saw. But think about the parallels here. Didn't Lucifer feel wronged that Jehovah was chosen instead of him? Lucifer was an angel in authority in the presence of God, the Doctrine and Covenants tells us. Might he have felt robbed of his right to government? Isn't that what Isaiah 14 tells us? That he wanted to ascend above the throne of the Almighty? Or as the book of Moses clarifies, he wants the Father's glory? Even that not-so-subtle accusation that he levels against the Father in trying to tempt Adam and Eve. Oh, of course he forbids you from eating this fruit because it will make you like him, knowing good and evil. And the last thing God wants is for you to become like him. That's all I was asking for, the Father's glory. See how he's twisting things there? The Father's ultimate goal is to share with his children his glory. Give us all things, but in the right way. 
It was actually Lucifer who was trying to rob something that did not belong to him. But he twisted it and turned the accusation on others. Just as Captain Moroni is a powerful type of Christ in the war chapters, Amalekiah and Amaron and others are powerful types of the adversary. He adds in 21, As concerning that God whom ye say we have rejected, behold, we know not such a being, neither do ye. Starting to sound a little like Korhor, right? No man can know of things to come. God, who's God? A being who has never been known and never will be known. Sounds like the false doctrine that the Zoramites, the Amalekites, the order of Nehor. Sounds like the stuff they've been preaching all along. He then softens somewhat and says, but if it so be that there is such a being, he goes from atheist to agnostic really quick, we know not but that he hath made us as well as you. Interesting irony there too. Uh, even assuming there is a God, and I don't believe there is one, we're his creation as much as you are. This is an interesting counterfeit of the truth that God is no respecter of persons. He does love all of his children equally, but he cannot bless them all equally. All flesh are one in his hand, but it is the righteous that are favored of God as far as his blessings are concerned. That's 1 Nephi chapter 17. Beautiful verse that helps balance God's unconditional love with his conditional blessings and conditional salvation. You see, Amaron seems to be mistaking creation, he's created us just like you, with salvation. So wouldn't he just save us just like you? That's Nehor doctrine. But creation and election aren't the same thing. Love and favor aren't identical. So Amaron's missing something there. He's also missing something in 22. And if it so be that there is a devil and a hell, behold, will he not send you there to dwell with my brother whom ye have murdered, whom ye have hinted that he hath gone to such a place? You call my brother a murderer and you say he's going to hell? Well, you killed him, so you're murderers too, and so you're going to the same spot. But here he is divorcing action from intention. And there's a counterfeit there as well. There was death occurring on both sides, but the intentions behind those actions couldn't be more different. Again, the justness of the Nephites' cause versus the injustice behind the cause of the Lamanites. God takes into consideration not only our actions, but our intentions behind those actions. And Amaron is refusing to see that distinction. And then he says at the end of 22, ah, but behold, these things matter not. He doesn't even care about the doctrine he's denying. I see that often in people who attack the faith. It's like they attack the fact that there are multiple accounts of the first vision, but they don't believe in visions at all. So why are we arguing over different accounts when you don't think the possibility even exists that any account could be true? Why are we arguing over conclusions? Your premise denies the whole thing. Ah, it mattereth not. If we're going to discuss doctrinal differences, can we at least agree at the beginning that they matter? I think that's one thing that's worth establishing at the beginning. Do you even care about the doctrines you're denying or the beliefs that you're battling? Amaron didn't. He then says in verse 23, I am Amaron and a descendant of Zoram, whom your fathers pressed and brought out of Jerusalem. Talk about twisting the past again. Just like your fathers wronged Laman and Lemuel, verse 17, well, they pressed and brought out of Jerusalem my ancestors, Zoram. 
Amaron, go back and reread 1 Nephi. Well, Nephi covenants with Zoram. If you join us, you will be a free man among our family in the wilderness. To go from servitude in the household of Laban to equality in Lehi's family? That doesn't sound like pressed and brought out to me. But then he finishes, Behold, now I am a bold Lamanite. I've gone from Nephite to Zoramite to Lamanite. We see this distancing reaching its fulfillment. Behold, this war hath been waged to avenge their wrongs. He ends the way he started. And to maintain and to obtain their rights to the government. And I close my epistle. Now, just like Moroni's letter ticked off Amaron, Amaron's epistle ticked off Moroni. If you go on to chapter 55, you see Moroni's reaction. And you see the word we pointed to earlier came to pass that when Moroni had received this epistle, he was more angry, justifiably indignant, true, but beware of anger. He knew that Amaron had a perfect knowledge of his fraud. He knew that Amaron knew it was not a just cause that had caused him to wage a war against the people of Nephi. This is Alma calling out Korahor for the lies that he knew he was perpetuating. Same thing here. So notice what Moroni does in verse 2, and this is interesting, because he said in his letter, I want to exchange prisoners, but I'll only do it on this condition. Release the Lamanite men in exchange for the Nephite men and women and children. And Amron had agreed to that in his epistle. Fine, I'll do it. I'd rather be feeding my soldiers than feeding Nephite prisoners any day. So the irony here is that Captain Moroni gets the promise of what he wants. But in verse 2, I, he says, I will not exchange prisoners with Amron, save he will withdraw his purpose, as I've stated in my epistle. See how clearly Moroni sees the difference between action and intention? I'm getting him to do the right action, but the intention behind it is off, and that will grant unto him more power than what he hath got. Now, I don't know exactly what he meant by that. If it was, I don't want him to have more power, namely his soldiers back, just more strength to his army. Or if there was some kind of rhetorical power, persuasive power, that that would be granting Amaron that he was in some way correct in divorcing action from intention, or that it would allow him to perpetuate this fraud, that his was some kind of legitimate authority that he deserved to be negotiated with. It's almost like right now Moroni is realizing, oh wait, Amron is claiming a right of authority and he has none. And by offering some kind of prisoner exchange, it seems like I'm recognizing his authority. It's like we see it all the time in movies that we will not negotiate with terrorists. Something similar seems to be happening here with Moroni. Forget the whole thing. Forget I even asked and forget that you agreed. I will not dignify your usurpation of authority by negotiating with you as if this were one legitimate government to another. Forget the whole thing. So he comes up with a different plan. And from verse 4 through verse 15, we see that plan unfold. It has to do with Moroni searching among his men for a descendant of Laman. Not only do they find one, but even his name is Laman. How perfect is this? Verse 5 says, He happened to be one of the servants of the king who Amalickiah had murdered. Interesting that that action comes back to bite him. Remember when they fled? Providing Amalekiah with the circumstantial evidence that it was actually they who had slain the king instead of his own servants. How oh, lies seem to get away from us, don't they? 
And like I said, this one comes back to bite him. He takes a bunch of Nephite wine, prepared in its strength, pretends to be a loyal Lamanite who had escaped from enemy lines and brought back their wine and wants to celebrate with the Lamanite soldiers who are guarding the Nephite prisoners of war. Well, you can probably guess what happens. The Lamanite soldiers drink the wine, become drunk, fall asleep, and now Moroni has a chance to deliver the prisoners. But let me take just a second to list some of the things that the Lamanite guards did wrong, because so often it's things that we might struggle with whenever we succumb to sin. For example, in verse 9, they didn't confirm what they heard. When Laman comes and tells this story, they just accept it. Sometimes that's the case when people attack the faith or plant seeds of doubt. We just read something. We see a quote taken out of context, or we see an event removed from its historical setting, some assertion without any verifying facts attached, and we just accept it. That's what they do in verse 9. Also in 9, they want the wine to fight their weariness. Do we sometimes rely on artificial sources of strength? When Laman initially says, oh, no, no, we shouldn't do this. We've got we to gotta stay focused. That only makes them want it even more, which I'm sure Laman knew would be the case. Does forbidding something only make us seem to want it more? Verse 11, they say, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to get more wine for our rations anyway. Do we find it okay to get more of something than is intended or what we deserve? That's what happens in verse 11. They then drink it all. They do according to their desires in verse 12. They overindulge their appetites in verse 13, where they also let their tastes overcome their better judgment. By then in verse 14, they've incapacitated themselves. And by 15, they're asleep at their post. Do similar things happen to us? Well, now incapacitated and asleep, these Lamanite guards would be easy prey for Moroni. But in verse 19, he doesn't delight in murder or bloodshed. He only cares about saving his people from destruction. So he doesn't kill them. Again, is there any other way without having to resort to violence? This is passion bridled the way it ought to be. So what's he do instead? Back in verse 16, Moroni prepared his men with weapons of war. He's prepared to fight if he needs to. But what he ends up doing as the Lamanites are asleep, he casts in the weapons of war unto the prisoners insomuch that they were all armed. This is a beautiful principle here. You see it spelled out in verse 20. He had armed those prisoners of the Nephites who were within the wall of the city and had given them power to gain possession of those parts which were within the walls. I love that he didn't just free them. He didn't do for them what they could end up doing for themselves if they were only equipped to do so. I already mentioned that quote from President Benson. Here's another perfect illustration of it. Instead of working from the outside in, here we are on the outside, have all the power and all the solutions. We'll break you out. We'll provide your freedom to you. You don't have to lift a finger. No, the Lord works from the inside out. He equips prisoners. He gives the trapped, the addicted, the imprisoned, power to gain possession of themselves. That's what the grace of God does. It fills us within. It grants us that power to free ourselves through Christ. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 22, by the time the Lamanites wake up the next morning, not only are they surrounded by Nephites without, but their prisoners are armed within. 
very wisely in verse 23 and very understatedly, they found that it was not expedient that they should fight with the Nephites. Yeah, good call there. Instead, they pled for mercy and they received it. They weren't slain. If I'm not going to kill drunk guards, I'm not going to kill surrendering soldiers. Instead, he frees all the Nephite prisoners in verse 24. They rejoin the army of Moroni and are a great strength to them. I love that. We're not just freeing prisoners for their sake. We're freeing them for ours. They have something wonderful to contribute. It's like Morianton and what he could have done to fortify the line between Lehi and Morianton instead of abandoning his post and his city and allowing it to fall into Lamanite hands. Imagine the strength that would come to the army if every inactive were brought back to full fellowship. If every addicted sinner were freed from their chains. They have so much to offer all of us. Come home. Strengthen the army. We need you. Maybe that's one more reason that Captain Moroni armed them from within. You need to get used to using weapons again because it's not just you that you'll end up freeing. We need your help freeing still others, freeing us. We need the strength that you will add to the army. Meanwhile, having freed the Nephite POWs, what does he do with the Lamanite POWs? Verse 25, he causes that they should commence a labor in strengthening the fortifications round about the city Gid, where they had just been. 26, they fortify that city according to Moroni's desires, which would have been a lot of work. We know how he fortifies cities, right? He then sends those prisoners to the city Bountiful, which he guarded with an exceedingly strong force. We actually see that back in chapter 53 in verses 3 through 6. An earlier group of Lamanite POWs are used to fortify the city of Bountiful. That's why it's such a great stronghold by the time we see it in chapter 55. In that passage, we get a few extra details. 53 verse 5, by forcing the Lamanite POWs to fortify the city, they were guarded within a wall which they had built with their own hands. This is the opposite of what we just saw about prisoners being armed within so that it could free themselves. You see the balance there? Prisoners need to be empowered to free themselves because it's typically prisoners who have imprisoned themselves behind walls of their own construction. We are more often punished by our sins than for them, right? We trap ourselves. We forge our own chains, build our own walls. Well, thankfully, the Lord empowers us to reverse that. We also see at the end of verse 5 that Moroni was compelled to cause the Lamanites to labor because it was easy to guard them while at their labor. Important principle as well. If the idle mind is the devil's playground, no wonder it's easier to guard ourselves, to keep our appetites in check when we are hard at work building the kingdom of God. So often it's the sins of omission that lead to the more damaging sins of commission. It's hard to guard our thoughts when we're not working at something. With all the work of fortification that these Lamanite prisoners performed, notice what becomes of the city of Bountiful. Verse 5, this city became an exceeding stronghold ever after. I had forgotten that it was Bountiful where the prisoners were kept. Because what do I typically associate with Bountiful? That was the site of the coming of Christ among the Nephites in 3 Nephi 11. 
There seems to be something fitting about that, that Christ comes to set prisoners free, that he came not among the healthy, but to the sick who needed a physician. Also that Christ comes to exceeding strongholds of faith and righteousness. He comes among saints who have fortified themselves spiritually. Also, one of the great things we know about the way Nephites approached the prisoners of war, we'll see this later on in these chapters, that often when Lamanites particularly were brought in after a battle, they were very often sent to live among the anti-Nephi Lehi's. Who better to rehabilitate them rather than just guard them? as they stewed in their anger and vengefulness. No, teach them. We saw that back in Alma 31. It's the word more than the sword that has a mighty effect on people. And so I do wonder how much teaching, how much crying repentance, how much rehabilitation was taking place in the city bountiful in these decades that preceded the coming of Christ to that exact location. Jumping back to chapter 55, where these Nephite POWs were just liberated. Notice verse 31 in the aftermath. The Nephites were not slow to remember the Lord their God in this their time of affliction. The war still raging. Just because they regained the city and freed their prisoners, the war still goes on. This is still a time of affliction. But they weren't slow to remember the Lord their God. And then one specific instance of that, I love this in 32. Anytime that Lamanites tried to sneak over and administer wine to Nephites, where they get this idea? Oh, yeah, it worked for them. Maybe it'll work for us. Well, it didn't. Because in 32, they were cautious that no poison should be administered unto them. 31 says that they would give it to the Lamanite prisoners first. If it's poisoned, we're going to know about it before we partake of any ourselves. Because... Funny detail in 32. If their wine would poison a Lamanite, it would also poison a Nephite. Glad they recognized that similarity. But what a great principle to think about. What's wrong for them is wrong for us. I'm grateful for parents that didn't have a second set of standards for themselves. They kept the same rules that they asked us to, to knowing that if something was wrong for their children, it was wrong for them as well. I think it was Elder Robert D. Hales who told the story of grandchildren that were thinking about watching a certain movie, and he said, oh, I'm not old enough to see that movie. Great thought from an old man. If it would poison the youth, it would poison me. There's no double standard here. Now, so far, we've been watching this letter exchange between Moroni and Amaron. There's another set of letters exchanged that we need to spend some time on, too. And this one is between Moroni and Pahoran, who happens to be the chief judge at the time. The story begins in chapter 59. We just skipped over a bunch of stuff about the stripling warriors, which we'll cover in the second half of this lesson. But still focusing on Moroni's strength, which leads to some potential weakness, see it start to unfold in chapter 59. 